We'll be back at the resurrection passages again this evening together. Matthew chapter 28, 1 through 10, Mark 16, 1 through 9, Luke 24, 1 through 12. We'll be noticing some ideas from these passages. A husband turned 50 years old and his sweet wife came to him and said on his 50th birthday, Honey, I think you'll live to be 100 years old. He said, Why do you think that? She said, Because you look half dead already. <laughs> you relate to that, don't you, Lee? <coughs> on the first day of the week, in the time of Jesus' resurrection, <coughs> Jesus was very much alive. This morning we noticed the words of the angels to the women as they prepared the women to go and spread the news, especially to Jesus' disciples, to spread the news about the resurrection. We're going to look at these passages tonight and notice how God himself is represented in these resurrection passages. We're going to see some very strong ideas about God and how he is brought forth to our view from these passages. And so we'll begin. If you don't mind, just um, be ready to flip your Bibles back from these three uh, places. But I think you'll see what we're trying to explain. First of all, God is presented here as, as a truth teller, the truth teller, the truth teller. Notice how Matthew, Mark, and Luke name the names of these women. There's Mary Magdalene, there's Mary the mother of James, there's Joseph or Joanna, there's Salome, and there's, there's likely some other uh, women. But he, he names them. See, these are, these are real names, these are real people, these are real ladies. This is real, this is real history, you see. It's also almost as if uh, Mark and Matthew and Luke are kind of saying to the world, if you don't believe um, the story that I'm writing here about the resurrection, then you can go and talk to these, these ladies here. They're still around, and you can go talk to these ladies, and they will verify uh, what we are saying here. This is reminiscent of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6, where Paul is saying, you know, Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to Simon and to Paul himself, to other of the disciples, but also to 500 brethren at once. And most of those are still alive. One of the wonderful things about the resurrection story is that it's verifiable, that there are people around and you can go, you can go in, the, in those early days and you could talk to people, and people likely did, not only to verify, verify the truth of it, but to really listen to the story again and again and again, to want to know how all this occurred on that, on that great day. See? And so God is the truth teller. This, is, this, this resurrection account is, is not some fabrication. It's not some story uh, invented. It's not some conspiracy. These are real people in real time, and they have real names, and, and uh, they name them uh, for us. You see, this is not some legend that has been 
passed down. This is not Jack and the Beanstalk. This is, this is not the Marvel Universe. This is not SC coming to town. This is real stuff. This is real stuff. Not only, uh, as you think about God being the truth teller here, not only are the women's names named, but um, no one is really expecting the resurrection on that morning. Hardly any of Jesus' followers are expecting the resurrection. These women, if you look in Mark, Mark's account there, in Mark 16, they're coming to the tomb. They've got their spices. They're, they're ready to finish the job. They, they're coming to finish the job of, of anointing the body of Jesus. They're not expecting a resurrection. In fact, right there in Mark 16, you read, uh, they're asking the questions to each other. And the question to each other, you know, who's going to roll, roll away the stone? They do not expect to see that stone rolled away. They do not expect to see the angel. They expect to see, try to somehow to find the body of Jesus and finish the job that they're going to do. And if you read in these accounts, you see how the ladies take the words that they've heard from the angels and go and share it with the disciples. The disciples treat those words as if they're just idle tales. They're, they have a very stubborn heart about all of this. So no one's really expecting the resurrection at all, which tells us it's a shame on the one hand. It's a shame that they don't know better. They haven't listened better. But on the other hand, it tells us that they're not inventing this story. Okay. It's embarrassing to them on the one hand, but on the other hand, they are recording it just as it happened because it is the truth from heaven. We read in Titus 1 that God cannot lie. He has promised, he's promised us eternal life. And he cannot lie. And so what we run into here, first of all, is God the truth teller. The truth teller. Secondly, in these accounts, we also see God represented as the powerful creator. The powerful creator. You see here in Matthew's account that as the women approach the tomb, that, that something, something has occurred. Uh, the, the stone has been rolled away. Uh, there was an earthquake associated with the actions of the angel. Okay. This is the power of God on display. If you want to glance over with me to Ephesians 1, you'll notice that Paul describes this resurrection as the power of God. Looking here to Ephesians 1, picking up around uh, verse 18. He says, um, having the eyes of your hearts... Uh, enlightened, opened, that you may know what is the hope to which we have, uh, he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. Here we go, verse 19, Ephesians 1. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Right there, Ephesians 1, 19, 20. So we run right into the incredible power of God. And God is displaying his power by bringing Jesus back from the dead. And he's working his power through uh, these angels. That's not uh, quite unusual. God has done this uh, before. He did it with Peter in Acts 12. Beginning in verse uh, 7, Peter is in prison, and God sends an angel to uh, rescue him out of the prison. And when 
The angel comes into where Peter is sleeping. It's interesting there that Peter is sleeping. Peter could very well be under a death sentence there for the very next day, but he is he's sleeping. He's sleeping soundly. And the, the angel wakes him up and the, the chains just fall off of Peter's body. And as the angel leads him out, and by the way, how did the angel get in there in the first place? Well, the doors just kind of, as they leave the city, the doors just kind of open of their own accord. See, there God is working his power there again through an angel. And that's what he's doing here on the resurrection morning. He has created an earthquake. He has created an opening of the tomb. He has brought Jesus back to life, and Jesus has walked out of that tomb. That weekend was a very powerful weekend. As Jesus was dying on the cross, we pick up in Matthew 27 and verse 51. Notice it says, Matthew 27, 51, it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went, into, um, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. So we run into the fact that God is presented here as the powerful creator. Powerful indeed he is. What do we learn from the power of God? Well, we learn first of all it's easier to obey God when we know of his power. Right there in Ephesians 1, if you keep reading, Paul is making the point. He's bringing us to this conclusion that God raised Jesus from the dead and then he set him on the right hand in his heavenly places on the right hand of God and gave him to be uh, the head of the church which is his, his body the fullness of him that fills all in all Jesus has all authority therefore seeing his power it makes it easier for us to submit and obey the power of God also ought to it ought to enhance our prayer life you notice that in the in the uh, habits of the early Christians as they prayed to God, they would address him as Father. Surely they would. But notice in Acts 4.24 that they also addressed him there as Sovereign Lord who is the creator of heaven and earth and everything that is in heaven and earth. Sovereign Lord. Every so often, and I would encourage you to do the same thing, all of us, that as we pray, Address God in different ways. Address Him as Father for sure. But also to be reminded of His power. Let's address Him as the Lord who created heaven and earth and everything that's in that. That will enhance your prayer life uh, as well. The power of God. The power of God. The power of God can make it easier for us to face death and face uh, judgment day. When Paul speaks of the change that's going to overcome us on Judgment Day, the change of our bodies. Our bodies will be changed and made like unto the glorious body 
of Jesus. He says this is all going to be according to the working of God's power. The very power that God has used to, su to submit everything to himself. His, his power as creator. That very power. That same power is going to change our bodies into a glorious body. And it's going to create a, an afterlife, an eternal life that we can enjoy. If we believe in the power of God on the one hand, then it's, going to, it's very easy to believe in the power of God on every other hand as well. And so, secondly, we see here that God is represented as the powerful creator. Thirdly here, as you look at Matthew 28 especially, thirdly notice... That God is presented as light. L-I-G-H-T. God is light. Notice the angel's appearance. It's there, I think Luke records it as them being dressed as um, in dazzling apparel. But here it says that their appearance was white as snow and was as bright as lightning. Here in Matthew's account. Bright as snow. Right as snow. When I think of snow, I think of the blizzard of 1993. Anybody remember that? We were living in Bear Creek, and it was March of 93. That's probably the most snow I've ever seen uh, come down uh, in my life. I was talking with a truck driver, really a, a retired truck driver the other day, and he was saying that one of the toughest things about his former job was when he would travel up north, especially north, northwest, after a snow. He said during the snow is not so bad, but after the snow, when the sun comes out on the snow, he said there were some spots that was near almost blinding, almost blinding, very difficult. He said he and his other co-workers would search and search back in those days for, for sunglasses that would help them be able to see uh, properly. Well, here we see the light of God through the appearance, appearances of these angels of God here on the resurrection morning. We understand that wherever God is, there is light. That's very um, prominent in Scripture. For example, God spoke to Moses out of the burning, burning bush, Exodus 3. We remember that uh, when Moses went up to the mount and communed with God, that, that he came down, his face shined so much that they had to put a veil over uh, his face. We remember when um, the angels appeared to the shepherds in the field, Luke 2, verse 9, that it says the glory of God shone all around. We know that when, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, that his face was transformed in very bright, bright uh, light. Very noticeable um, brightness in that appearance. And then we recall when, when the Apostle Paul, back when he was Saul, uh, tells his conversion experience that he says it was noonday when God appeared to him. And it was a bright light, brighter, brighter, than the noonday sun. And so we, we, it's hard for us to imagine just how bright that light uh, would have been. God is light. God is light. When you look over, we were talking uh, last week just briefly about the holy city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, what will be our home uh, after this life. 
And there in that city will be, um, will be the glory of God and the Lamb. And somewhere along through here, I'm trying to pick it up here in Revelation 21, it says you won't need a light there in that holy city because the glory of God and of the Lamb will be the light. will be all the light that you will need. Okay. 1 John 1 and verse 5 says, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And so we run into the truth that God is, is light. What does that remind us of? Well, it certainly reminds us of the love of God. The love of God. Because in the same book, 1 John 1, 5, God is light, but 1 John 4 says God is love. So it reminds us of God's love. But more than that, in 1 John 2, you'll notice it in your Bible, and I'll just kind of give a quick glimpse at it. But 1 John 2, 9 through 11, John writes that, that if you love others as God loves you, then you're good. But if you don't, then you are walking in darkness. And you're walking in darkness in such a way that you're stumbling and you do not know where you're going. You have no idea what you're doing in your life. So God's light is reflected by His, His love. But also God's light is reflected by the gospel. If you check 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, you'll see that the God of this world, Satan himself, he blinds the minds of the unbelieving, lest the, the glory of the gospel of God should dawn upon them. Okay. And if that light dawns upon them, then the devil has, has lost. The devil works very hard in the parable in the explanation of the parable of the sower, Luke 8, 11, and 12, it says when a seed comes into a person's heart, the first thing the devil wants to do is come and get that seed out, lest that person should, should believe and be saved. The devil knows he's going to have a very tough time if ever the, the light of that gospel, if it ever dawns on someone, if it, ever, if it ever, ever captures the heart, then he's going to have a very tough time taking that person down. So the light of God represent, is represented by the love of God and by the gospel of God and also by living for God. Okay. By living for God. We're, we're encouraged not to walk in darkness. One uh, passage there would be Ephesians 5 where Paul says, you know, you were, the, you were in darkness, you were darkness, but now you're the children of light. So, so walk as children of light. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men. So what, is the, what does the light of God mean to us? It means we are to love. It means we're to, we're to embrace the gospel and share it. And it means that we're to live righteously as God would have us to live. We can go on and on about that. But notice in the third place that God is presented here as the God of light. He is light. Going back to these resurrection passages, notice this also. Notice that God is presented as, as the very tender, compassionate one. We know this to be true, but we love to see it illustrated. God is the very touching, tender, compassionate God. I get this from Mark 16, verse 9. Who was it that Jesus appeared to first? He appeared first of all the appearances that Jesus is going to make after his resurrection. Who did he appear to first? You see it there in Mark 16, 9. Mary Magdalene. 
What was special about Mary Magdalene? What had Jesus cast out of her? How many devils? Seven demons. Seven demons. We stop and think about what that experience must have been. We read about demon possession. We read about a man in um, Mark chapter 5 who was demon possessed and, and he had to live out in among the cemetery. In the cemetery. They had to chain him out there and he often would, would break loose from the chain. And, but he was so gruesome and uh, such a terror that they chained him out of the cemetery. We read in Matthew 17 of a young one a man possessed with a demon and oftentimes the demon would throw him down on the ground and he would end up foaming out of his mouth because of such torture and pain. We remember in Luke 8 reading about the Jesus casting the demons out and into a herd of swine and swine go off into the cliff and into, uh, into the sea. Seeing all this power and all of this uh, wretchedness how must it have been for Mary Magdalene to be possessed with seven demons? Well, Luke 8, 1 through 3 is the recording of when Jesus came and, and cast those demons out. And from that point on, Mary Magdalene was his disciple. And she is one of the first there at the tomb on resurrection morning. And he chose her first to make his appearance too. Because Jesus knows. Jesus knows. He knows she's had a rough time. Don't we agree there are just some folks in life that have a rougher time for whatever reason than do other folks. Here is a lady who's had a very tough road. And he's not going to forget her. He's also honoring her commitment to him we see the tender compassionate Lord at work we need to know remind ourselves remind those who are hurting that if nobody else is paying attention God for certain he knows he knows he knows you're every hour he knows he knows everything about you Psalm 56 is really not a chapter I was planning to think about it but it just popped in my head but it's such a great chapter and it says there that God keeps our tears in his bottle he knows our tossings at night he knows when we get up from the bed and we walk around because we're just struggling for whatever reason God knows every little occurrence in life and so we see here in these resurrection passages we see we see God the truth teller. We see God the powerful creator. We see God the light. We see God the compassionate one. And we also see God the patient one. The patient one. How patient he is. These disciples. These disciples. Don't be too hard on these disciples. Because we look a lot like them. But these disciples. You would think. You would think. That on the third day, one of the disciples would have just spoken up and said, Hey, you, you think we need to go check the tomb? You think, you think we need to go and just see? You, 
Do you think it would hurt anything if we just go? It is the third day now. Do you think we should just go and check it out? Just to settle our minds? Do you think one of them would have spoken up? But when you, when you, when you read, like Luke 24, 10 and 11 says, when, when the women report it, it's like an idle tale. It's like, it's like the, the least thing that you would ever believe. And now over in Mark 16, the verses leading up 13 and 14, Jesus had to rebuke them because of their hardness of heart and their refusal to believe in the resurrection. You would think, you would think, after all that Jesus said, we, we went over a few of these this morning from Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 33, Luke 18, 33, Matthew 16, 21 and 24, over and over again, Jesus saying, I'm going to be delivered unto the hands of sinful men. I'm, I'm going to be killed on the third day. I'm going to rise. You would think, you would think one of them, one of them would have said, let's, let's, you know, it might be a possibility. It just might be a possibility. But we don't see anything like that. We see nothing. We see nothing. It's, it's, it's still, even though we know this to be true, it's still quite quite stunning. It is quite stunning. Jesus even tried to illustrate it for them. He says, you know, as Jonah, everybody knows about Jonah, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah came out of the fish. The Son of Man is going to come out of the earth. He says in, in John 2, 19 and 20, destroy this temple and what? And in three days I will build it back. Not talking about a building, talking about the temple, which is his, his body. Later on the disciples would understand it, but not now. Not on resurrection day, not right away. How patient God is with them. In our lower selves, you know, we might even say one you would think that that the report to, from Jesus to the disciples would not be, hey, go tell my disciples I'm going to meet them in Galilee. Maybe it would be more like, hey, go tell those, those weaklings, go tell those cowards, go, 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 go tell those backstabbers that, hey, I'm going to meet them in Galilee anyway. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, go tell my disciples. And not only does he not use that kind of language, in fact, if you look at Mark 16, 13, and 14, what Jesus is going to do, he's going to rebuke them for their unbelief, and then he gives them a great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's amazing how patient our Lord is with them and with us. Now, his patience will run out, but we are stunned how patient he was with these, these disciples. And our Lord is reaching out to us as sometimes we are hard-hearted and rebellious and a little dense like these disciples. But yet, just like these disciples, the Lord has given us a great commission and He is waiting. You know, the Lord knows that it takes a while for things to penetrate and when you look right here in Luke 24, 11 and 12, you see Peter, he runs into the tomb, he stoops, he sees, 
He's amazed, but he goes home. He goes home. It's the news, the truth is still penetrating. It will eventually penetrate Peter. And when it does, watch out because Peter's on fire. But it took, it took a while for all this to, to coalesce together. And once Peter got it, he got it. So we see God pre presented as a very compassionate uh, Lord. Well, that's as far as we'll go uh, this evening. But these resurrection accounts present to us a picture of our God that is, in my estimation, just amazing. Just amazing. There's so much more that we could study concerning the resurrection throughout the book of Acts, throughout the book of Romans, but we'll draw it to a close this evening. Appreciate uh, your listening. I encourage you to go back and read these passages. We didn't get into John 20. So it's Luke 24, John 20, Mark 16, Matthew 28. All talk about the resurrection account. So many rich truths that are there. But right now, let's stop and let's take a close look at ourselves. Because we can't be so hard on these disciples. Because we ourselves have more truth than they had. And yet God is reaching out to us. In one place in Romans, we read in Romans 4, 25 and 26, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, but He was raised for our justification. God wants us to be saved. He wants us to read these accounts and, and be encouraged and be inspired to be saved. Would you come to our Lord tonight? What is your invitation, son? Jesus paid it all. Very appropriate song for what we've been talking about. Going back again, Romans 4, notice that. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He paid it all. But he was raised for our salvation. He gives us great assurance. Will you come to him this evening? Let's all stand and sing.